All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland, and our guest tonight is Jonathan Weiss, and we're going to be talking about New Orleans. You know, New Orleans is one of those things that I think is in all of us as as mysterious and made all the more so because of media since then, like Anne Rice and stuff like that, you know, so... Mm-hmm. It not only has the sort of melting pot history of weirdness uh, going on, but it also has that uh, that Santa Cruz vampire level that's been thrown off. <laughs> you know, thanks to uh, other stuff. But why don't you tell us a little bit about you, Jonathan, and what you do so we can get this started? Sure. Um, I've been doing tours nearly 20 years in the city, mm-hmm. which makes me pre-Katrina, which is kind of cool and kind of sad. Uh, it's Yeah. It's cool that I'm uh, I'm one of the maybe there's 20 of us that are pre Katrina still up in the whole city, oh. Oh. and I get to be one. And three of the other guys work with me. So you know, we there's a cadre of the old hardcore guys who really know the history and the folklore mm-hmm. and the legendary. I kind of want to express it all. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. The history of our city is 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 very strange and very blended with folklore. And I think it has to do with who we were, the people we were, and the, the waves of immigrants that came to join us. And also just the area we're in, the city and the area we're in had a lot of folklore and strange legend even before uh, the freshmen showed up. So it's pretty cool to be able to work all these things together. And it's pretty easy to do if you know what you're doing here. Um, You know, you brought up Katrina and being pre-Katrina. Did Katrina wipe out any of this history? Oh, yeah. Tons of it. I mean, the original French city is the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. And the original French neighborhoods are the two neighborhoods downriver of the French Quarter. Um, and then the only other neighborhood the United States would know would be the Garden District. Ironically, the historic neighborhoods and Garden District didn't flood. Hmm. Oh. So we were spared because the French built above water and the, the Americans when they built the Garden District just happened to build on a ridge high enough that it didn't flood. But the rest of the city was uh, essentially floodplain and completely was soaked. I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say that the day before Katrina, that'd be the 28th of August, 2005, there were 175,000 historic properties in the city of New Orleans. And by dark fall on the 30th of August, there were 75,000 historic properties in the city of New Orleans. Wow. And the rest were completely wiped out, uh, almost without exception. Some were heavily damaged and they've been able to be brought back into service. But uh, the majority of houses we're talking about, homes in many cases, were completely destroyed as in demolished you know americans are starting to see what a flood can do now we're starting to see that kind of imagery more often um but like a tornado leaves nothing but a foundation flood does the same thing right yeah Yeah. especially with like older buildings right oh yeah well i mean they were wonderfully sturdy buildings but i mean when you got tons of water hitting a you know a a thousand foot frontage it's just gonna go away right (laughs) yeah Uh, it's it's the reality of it but uh, it really did a lot of damage to our city's history and culture because our neighborhoods are the repository of our city's history and culture completely. You know, like Brooklyn used to be like a neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were, it was a very neighborhood city. Philly was a neighborhood city. Boston is to some degree still a neighborhood city. New Orleans was the same way. So when you had 76, I think it was identifiably different, recognizably different neighborhoods in a city of 450,000 people, that's small. Right. That's a small city. Every neighborhood had its own history and its own culture. And the people of the neighborhood were generationally repositories of that information and that kind of history. So when the neighborhoods got wiped out, we lost so much. It's really kind of harsh to think about it, especially if you're into history and 
folklore yeah. things like that because you know i guess one of the coolest things for me of being pre-katrina is i've been pounding the streets of the french quarter so long that if you don't know me by sight then you're the new one okay right. uh-huh. but i was here before katrina and a lot of the old families that were still there in the quarter there were still a few knew who i was and knew i was trying to keep the folklore and the history alive and kind of show the flag of respect to the city and they gave me pieces of their own family folklore uh-huh. and that is gold. If they don't tell me, I will never know. So that's what I really mourn is that all these people are no longer there anymore. And they took a lot of the city's history with them. And that's, that's kind of a heartbreaker for me. That's devastating. Yeah. yeah. So is your goal to, I mean, I know that you, you run the tours, but is your goal to, um, to somehow collect and archive that information as well? I would love that. I mean, I, I my ideal my ideal is um, people would come to my company because they'll just understand at a certain point, no matter what the tour is, voodoo tour, cemetery tour, history tour, whatever it is, if you go through him, he will have the best guy. He'll know the best guy for it. Mm-hmm. He'll have the person who's the very best, most knowledgeable at the cemetery. So what if most, you know, I've got a voodoo tour where a voodoo priest leads a voodoo tour. Nobody else says one of those. So, uh, it's cool to, to realize, or that's the hope that people understand. It's like, if you really want to know what this really means, if you want to know the, you know, not the, the whistles and bells, but the real history, the real legend, he will know a guy, go to him. Right. And I, that's, that's my hope. And I'd like to kind of almost co-op with the other guys that are, you know, strong historians and people who are really passionate about the city and passionate about the culture and folklore. So at least like you're saying, we can archive it collectively, almost if like a low max project, you know what I mean? But we, at least we have the stories. We can all tell the stories, right. kind of be on the same play page and inform as well as entertain. Um, and that would be ideal. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if you know a lot of tour guides, but trying to get tour guides in New Orleans to all work at one point is very much like herding cats, except for the cats are usually, you know, they'd have to be drunk and half mad. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it does seem like, a, you know, an interesting uh, career choice. You know, I've, I've, I've always thought it was interesting, kind of like a docent of a city or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it takes a specific personality to be able to do it because I don't think I, I don't think I can do it, you know? So, so it I'm does take a very specific personality. Feather. You have to have a lot of patience. Yeah. And, and a lot of willingness to, you know, retell the story, you know, I'm sure there's a, a factor of that is, having a true love of the story enough to the point where when you're telling it your 15th time, you're still loving to tell it. Yeah, that has a lot to do with it. Um, but also, you know, when you have a different group, every group is new and it, you know, you realize that this yeah. is the first time they've heard it. Mm-hmm. So it might as well be the first time you're ever telling it. It really is in that respect. You know what I mean? Oh, so it, yeah. it makes it easy to do when you enjoy what you're doing. And then you have people who are really interested in knowing. Right. It's yeah. very rewarding like that. No, I, I can identify with that because like, uh, you know, I have movies that I would never watch again, but if I have a chance to watch them with somebody who's never seen it, I like, I find myself all sucked in again, going, what's going to happen, you know, because right. they're experiencing it for the first time. Um, you know, let's, let's talk about some of the history that makes, I, I think New Orleans is one of those places that we all go, oh yeah, they got this history, but you know, I don't know if we really know what it yeah. is. Like you were saying, voodoo. I don't know much about. I I had no idea. You mentioned a moment ago that uh that there was sort of a folklore to the area before the French even arrived. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> so 
Yeah. I think. So what 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 was the give us an example of the folklore of the area before the French arrived? Well, one thing that's very cool is uh, the specific area where the French Quarter is, the original city, the mile by half mile city. Um, it was very specifically picked. It was not an accident. The French spent 20 years wandering in the bayous, trying to find where the Mississippi River, they knew where it started mm-hmm. up in Canada, right? They knew up in that area, right. Detroit, et cetera. They were up there, but they didn't know where it ended. Huh. So we're trying to find the tail end of the Mississippi River. And then once they found it, they were trying to find the best place to build a military defensible city, right? right? But the thing is, that was such a perfect area. The natives, of course, they knew it was a perfect area too. They used it as a trading ground for centuries and centuries. Um, there's an area of the French Quarter close to the river called the French Market. And it's actually considered the oldest trading post that we still use in North America as a result. But the thing that was interesting is that the Indians of the area wouldn't spend the night where we, where we are. They wouldn't spend the night in the French Quarter. They wouldn't close their eyes, and it was the highest ground within 100 miles. Because they said, and they even tried to warn the French when they arrived, that the area was cursed. They said, do not build here, you'll regret it. And as I said, they wouldn't let the sun go down on their backs in the area of the French Quarter. They would always walk about three miles away, straight down the road called the Bayou Road that we still have today. And they would sleep essentially in a bike rather than sleep on the high ground. And then they'd pack up and go back the next day for trades. But they would never let the darkness fall on the area. And I, I always thought that was just amazingly cool, you know? Yeah. yeah. Do it's we know what it was cursed weird. with? Yeah, well, or I is think cursed I do. for them maybe a looser term? Uh, cursed, yeah, I guess it could be a looser term. It could be a looser term for us today. But yeah, that's true. Uh, I think in specific, I understand why they consider this ground cursed. And it's something I go into in my dark history tour, hmm. which I, by the way, am the only person in the city who does. Because really? it's generally a wonderful city for the really horrible things that made us what we are. Uh-huh. Yeah. You would think there would be a lot of people um, embracing this sort of dark history of it. Because so many of the rest of us sort of associate, well, we don't associate it with being a dark place. We also associate it with being a party place. And and we associate it with history and, um, you know, ethnic melting pot. We associate it with a lot of things. But but a dark history, like you were saying, voodoo is is definitely something that I feel that people kind of associate New Orleans. Oh yeah, with good reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, voodoo, voodoo in our city is very much alive and well, very much alive and well, even today. Yeah. Oh God, of course. Yeah, um, before COVID, and hopefully soon, you know, the next couple of months, once we get a level of immunization in our city and around the United States. Um, for years and years and years, in what they call Armstrong Park, which was originally called Congo Square. Um, it was a place where slaves would gather on Sundays to, to dance and sing and make their own trading ground, if you will. You know, they would sell goods, barter goods back and forth to each other. Um, and it was really, really an area of open air worship. It was open air voodoo. But they were very good about hiding it from the eyes of the Catholics around them. And then later the Protestants around them. So uh, and it's, it's literally just it was just across the street from the city, mm. across the street. So um, to this day, until COVID, voodoo practitioners were still having regular, uh, regular Sundays in the square. They drum, dance, sing. They bring things they bake and sell, things like that. I mean, literally, it was exactly the way it was as it was 250, 300 years ago. So wow. that's a really cool thing. Uh, and like I said, my buddy who, who does my, my voodoo tours with me, uh, he's a voodoo priest. 
And the reason we go, we only go on Sundays because I want people to be able to go and actually experience that and see the drumming and see the dancing and see the, the Veve artwork and, and, you know, buy some crafts, buy some food if they want to, you know, and just kind of mingle amongst people and see and watch and kind of demystify it, make it not so scary, but also explain it really as, as a vibrant, passionate, artistic religion. Yeah. Well, that's definitely my next question about voodoo is that is voodoo as, as dark as we like have it in our heads or have we been historically brainwashed by, uh, the Christianity we've all grown up inundated with? I would suggest it's B rather than A. Um, you know, the racism inherent in the Hollywood depictions of voodoo and, of course, the Christian literal demonization of voodoo uh, has, has irreparably um, imprinted in the minds of people what voodoo is. Voodoo is, Catholicism is a lot like voodoo because voodoo is about two and a half times older than Catholicism recognizably. But they have very similar concepts, including uh, it's a monotheistic religion. There's only one God. Oh, really? But just like, just like uh, voodoo has, I mean, uh, Catholicism has saints and archangels. Mm-hmm. Voodoo has what they call lua, great spirits. And they are analogous to saints and archangels. And they have things that they're responsible to God for. He gave them tasks to perform and things to be, if you will, in guardianship over, like a patron of, uh, patron of conflict or a patron of love, things like that. So just mm-hmm. like in the Catholic Church, rather than going to light a, a candle for a saint, you just bring gifts to the voodoo altar of the spirit you're speaking to. And you're petitioning that spirit to help you with a problem. The spirit receives its power from God. So it's really not that unfamiliar to Christians when you break right. it down. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, there. yeah, I was raised Catholic and there's definitely the pantheon of saints. And, and that makes a lot of sense that, uh, yes. that comparison, you know. Yeah. If you understand Catholicism at all, it really does make a lot of sense. If you understand uh, Wicca, it makes a lot of sense. So there are a lot of pagan religions that have similar um, practices to Buddha as it was said in French. So is, you know, I'm getting all caught up in voodoo because voodoo is interesting, but uh, um, <laughs> everything's interesting, man. Every, yeah. Everything is interesting. But, you know, in all, in every other state, I can imagine a huge amount of Christian pushback to any public voodoo gathering. Is there any of that there? Uh, usually it's not from the city. No. We get people who come in from Mardi Gras and other festivals screaming that we're all going to go to hell because Jesus loves us. So he's, we're going to burn, you know, that right. kind of stuff. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. yeah. The Jesus haters, the ones that are the death cultists, um, they love Jesus, but they hate everybody else. Um, but those people usually come from, you know, Texas or Mississippi or Florida or Kansas or something like that. They're, they're in no way, shape or form locals. They're, they're really there just to make themselves martyrs because that's kind of key to their identity. Right. Um, the Catholic church, um, I really don't know what the official position of the Catholic Church is. I suspect with the new Pope, it's just benign tolerance, mm-hmm. you know, respect for different religions. Sure. But we actually, uh, last two years ago, we had the Dagba, who is essentially the Pope of Voodoo, West Africa, who came to New Orleans and, and visited with us and, you know, was received by a deputy of the mayor, the whole thing. So oh, wow. it's mm-hmm. still very alive and very real. Um, huh. And it's yeah. interesting, too, you know, it was easy to hide it inside the Catholic faith because they had so many similarities. That's why it survived and flourished here. Yeah, that kind of brings up, I've, I've always wondered, is voodoo in New Orleans sort of different than in voodoo elsewhere? Is it oh, a yeah. regionally specific thing? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, New Orleans voodoo is much more 
it's much more like the city. It's strange. It seems like Voodoo, to some degree, takes on the character of where it is mm-hmm. and molds itself in that way. Um, Nolan's Voodoo I mean, is a lot like more friendly. Religions. Yeah. Yeah, but Nolan's Voodoo is, is much more friendly. It's much more open. It's much easier to be involved in New Orleans Voodoo. Um, it comes from the Haitian route, without a doubt. And the Haitian route is a lot more Catholic in that things must be done this way by this person at this time. Mm-hmm. But New Orleans Voodoo is a little more comme comme ça. It's a little more loose like the city is. It's more like you're making a relationship with a spirit. It's almost like you're making a friendship with a spirit. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, totally interesting. So, <laughs> so on the on the dark history, you know, obviously we're not hugely talking about voodoo. You know, what's what's some of this dark history um, of New Orleans? You know, are, well, are we talking killers? Are we talking ghosts? Are we talking? You name it, brother. I mean, generally my dark history, I, I cover a variety of things, and the things as many things as I can pack into two hours with a break. There's still tons of things I don't ever get to tell mm-hmm. because we don't have the time. I really try and cherry pick things that happened in our city's history so people can understand where we were in time, if you will, as we go through the streets. Um, we burned down two times within six years mm. and in early, in the mid, late 1700s, and those fires were genuinely devastating. Uh, to, to no small degree, we genuinely lost the first seven decades of the city's history up in smoke mm. on two very bad nights. Wow. So that alone, the destruction that was wrought by those fires is something that's dark. Uh, the misery that followed having an entire city from 863 buildings reduced to seven buildings in six hours. Oh, all wow. the food stores, all the medicine, all the shelter, all the clothing stocks completely destroyed. And you've got thousands of people who are trapped in a bayou. That's like a, a horrible Hollywood you know, disaster movie, except for it really happened here. Right. Um, Epidemics, slavery, of course, was big in New Orleans. People get very confused by New Orleans because we're so overwhelmingly sensual and we're overwhelmingly just just constantly in your face. And it's a completely different world than the rest of the United States. But big surprise, New Orleans is the deepest part of the Old South. And so slavery in our city was very, very real and very big. So I talk about that. Um, I enjoy talking about that. it's, It's interesting to get people's reactions and... I think more people are, are happy that, that I'm not willing to shy away from it because it's yeah. kind of stuff that, you know, we need to talk about it. Yeah. We well, talk I mean, it, we let's, let's talk about that a little bit. When we think about the South, you know, I still think of the South as being pretty socially segregated, although I've never really been there just from talking to people and watching TV. I don't know if this is a preconceived notion that I have. But I, I view it as still socially pretty segregated. Um, but I kind of view New Orleans as not being that. Um, am I am I wrong with my assumptions? No, generally New Orleans, I think, is the, probably the most well integrated of the southern cities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's I think it has to do with our neighborhoods were predominantly class based rather than race based. Right. Yeah. Um, for example, the, the neighborhood immediately downriver of the French Quarter is the Marigny. That's my neighborhood. And uh, it was part of a, a plantation originally, and it was made into a, a housing development around 1805. And the thing is, though, he would, Bernard de Marigny, the man who owned the properties, just sold them to whoever had the money for, to buy the properties. Mm-hmm. So you had free Black people. You had um, um, poor Frenchmen and Spaniards. You had uh, German and Irish immigrants coming into the neighborhood. And so you quickly develop this neighborhood just across the street from the French Quarter's boundary that was extremely religiously and ethnically um, and racially integrated. 
mixed. Plus, you know, our traditions of uh, our history here has to do a, a lot with genuine physical racial blending. People in New Orleans are very mixed blood people to no small degree. Right. right. And that's one reason why I view them as so integrated is because um, those lines have been blurred so drastically through relationships. and, and Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny time, because yeah. in New Orleans to this day, you can always tell when somebody lives here, somebody just moved here or somebody lives in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you say, what part of town are you from? And they say, oh, I'm from here. In New Orleans, you always say your ward or your neighborhood. I see. Sometimes you say you cross streets. Right. <laughs> there's little little cues, little tricks like that. New Orleans is a funny city because it's been such an immigrant city. But... Uh, it's been such a target for hucksters and, and carpetbaggers and people trying to make a buck off us forever that I think a lot of New Orleans are somewhat suspicious of, of outsiders to a little degree. So we always have these strange tricks, like how we pronounce words, how we pronounce street names, for example. Right. It confuses people and turns them upside down. And it's just kind of like, I think, a, almost like a vetting process to speak to a New Orleanian. If you understand about <laughs> half of what they're saying, you're pretty good. <laughs> well, it's, you know, there's probably that um, apprehension because, I mean, once a year, you guys do hold one of the most famous parties in the world, and it probably does not bring in the best from around the world on a reg. And, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of like, oh, God, it's the outsiders again, you know? Yeah, I mean, we love hosting people, but uh, we do get a little tired of people not remembering that this is a city where people live in a neighborhood right it's not a place to come and vomit on a front porch <laughs> right <laughs> we'd really appreciate if you didn't do that that'd be cool you right. didn't pee on our trucks so so yeah we, we get a little jaded but generally we actually do like people pretty much we love to host people we're very proud of our city so we love to show it off mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons that, that covid's been so disastrous for us i mean after katrina as bad as it was we could at least socialize we could sit in the mm-hmm. bars and restaurants. We could drink together. We could go to music shows together. You and we could all kind of yeah. commiserate. But yeah. we are arguably the most social people in the United States. And we literally can't be close to each other. Right. So it's been a real kind of a double punch for <laughs> yeah. us this year. Yeah. The past year, it's been, it's been tough. And I, I get that because I'm here in Ashland, Oregon, which is a small town, but it's based around... Uh, a Shakespearean festival, and that's where a huge amount of the dollars for the locals comes in, and that was all shut down yeah, this year. That's so like the oh, entire yeah. town, so yeah, right, you know, yeah. So none of that money is is coming all through town. Tourism. Yeah, basically, the town is <laughs> twenty thousand people, but through the summer, it uh, has three hundred thousand people pass through it. You know, so I mean, it's it was a big hit on the town, and I'm I'm yeah. sure you guys are experiencing that as well. Yeah, our, our music club has been closed for more than a year. Hmm. So, um, you know, let's talk about the supernatural stuff. Yeah, sure. all right, the, supernatural the stuff. <laughs> what do you think would be the most famous haunting in New Orleans? If you if I were to, the most I, famous, the one that people know the most, at least in the area, the one that tourists know the most is the Lollery House, mm-hmm. American Horror Story season three, Coven. Delphine oh, really? Lottery, Kathy Bates' character. Oh, really? Delphine Lottery was the infamous torture that. mother. It's based on... I've seen that. I didn't know it was based yes. on it. Okay. Oh, so. yeah. 
Go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah, Delphine Lallery was a real person. Marie Laveau was a real person. The Axeman of New Orleans was oh. our first serial killer. These are all really? characters. Yeah, these are all wait. characters in. But yes, the Axeman <laughs> is on my Dark History Tour, in case you're wondering. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but these are all real people, and these these were all, uh, you know, real breathing, breathe, we're presuming breathing, because the Axeman was considered a demon. Um, <laughs> real people, real characters, living characters of the city of New Orleans, historically. Delphine Lallery's house, the Lallery house, or as people must pronounce it, LaLaurie. The Lallery house is the uh, most infamous haunting in the city. And the building is really haunted. I mean, it, it's a no joke, really howlingly haunted place. I, I've got mm-hmm. amazing photos on my phone that were taken on tours. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite one is two ladies are taking a photograph, click, click, that quick, side by side. Ghosts can appear so quickly, it blows your mind because these shutters snap a half quarter second apart. The first photograph, you can see this misty shape forming approximately two feet in front of the woman, a heavy misty shape. But by the second photograph, a half second later, you can already see the head and shoulders have developed in a waistcoat. Wow. And literally, it's like a man who was standing right in front of these ladies staring at them saying, can you see me? Hmm. That close, that creep. Hmm. Uh, photographs could, were could standing they see him or was it just in the picture? I'm sorry? Uh, sorry, could, could they see him or was it no. just in the pictures? No, yeah. just in the pictures. You know, most adults wow. can't see dead people. Um, photographs where people are standing in the doorway, standing on the balcony. There's nobody there, but they're looking, you know, literally sitting there staring down, listening. To, that's why um, photographs, cameras are so much fun. You can really, if you, if you think you're paranormally sensitive, you can find out with your phone because it's got a camera. Mm-hmm. So anytime you feel something strange, if you start photographing the area and you're getting things, then you know that you're not insane. It's kind of handy like that. But we get all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, you know, when I do my tours, my, my, for example, when I do my ghost tour, I don't take the lottery house. It's, it's overdone. Uh, it, it takes several minutes to walk down there. It's a big story. Um, if you know about it, you don't need to hear about it. If you don't know about it, quite honestly, I don't think you need to know about it. It's horror. It's like a, a Saw movie. It's nothing but torture porn. There's nothing redeeming or hopeful or instructive except for how vicious and cruel the super rich can be. And I think we kind of already know that. Yeah, right? no, that's a, that's, but, that's a So there's nothing hopeful, <laughs> helpful, or redeeming about it. And quite honestly, it's hard to actually tell the real story because the, the things that really happen, I use quotes from the newspapers of the time period mm. and people wince when I use quotes that were written in a newspaper 170 years ago. Okay. 180 years ago. Yeah. You don't have to make things up about it. Mm. So when you're sitting out in front of it and you're trying to get people to pay attention about how something that's really grim, but they want to know about it. All right. You pay me for it. I'll tell you, but you'll have half a dozen other tour companies around you who are just screaming the most inane things because they're all trying to out sensationalize each other. So that that's a real frustration for most experienced tour guides. And the best thing about working for myself is I don't ever have to tell that story again because I don't want it. <laughs> well, uh, what is there, the story? Stories. I'm sorry. There are other stories nobody knows. Yeah, but what are the long. stories that you do want to tell? Like if you're going on oh, a tour okay. and they say we want you to take us to the place that that you want to go the most. Where's the place that you take them at that point? Oh, God, there's so many cool places. The places I pick on my tour are places that have a resonance for me, a lot of experiences mm-hmm. for myself, places that, that are historically extremely important that I also know have a lot of ghost activity. Um, one of my favorite stops I love to take people to is one of the only three French buildings we have in our city. There's only three French buildings left after those fires. And the building is cool because it was a home almost the entire time. From 1726 to 1964, people like us were born and grew up and raised their families and died in the building. 
So it's the only home we've got. It's also uh, the, was originally the home of a very well-off family. So it would have been a very rare building. But the very first people who lived in the building had a, a the husband had a horrific fate. And his wife was 19 years old, 2,000 miles away from her family, with a three-year-old daughter, and no training, and no skills, and no money, except what was in the building, no food, um, no way to get a job because she's a woman, and she couldn't remarry for a year in our Catholic city. Hmm. So she literally was in one of the worst places, most desperate places any woman could ever be in. So telling that story, automatically, I can connect to a lot of the women in the audience, you know, because they've all felt completely trapped, completely... Okay. Um, you know, just just pinned down by society and by life. And it's it's a story that's great because you can explain who she is, get people to sympathize with the, the, the woman, then explain how it all happens, then explain how she survived it. So there's kind of a cool little roller coaster and people invest in that story. It's a great story. But I can also tell the ghost activity that happens because of her, because of what she endured, because of that horror she experienced. And why she's still in the building to this day. She's one of my favorite photographs. I got a picture of her walking her, her gallery, just pacing back and forth along her gallery with her, her long train of her dress dragging up the staircase. She's literally making fake physical contact with mortal plane, huh. which is it's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. But it was her home. Of course, she knows exactly every single square inch of it. So that's a story I love to tell because it, it explains who we are. And it, it also lets people understand why ghosts are around, what makes them motivated to stay places. Um, uh, one of the other buildings I like to go to is the oldest tavern in the city. It's a great place to take a break in the oldest bar in the city. But it's also got an incredible haunted history because it was essentially an end of the city that was given over to organized crime for 200 years. Whether it was the Pirates of the Caribbean, whether it was um, the first Sicilian Cosa Nostra mafia in the United States, which actually is in New Orleans, not New York. Um, whether it was the you know modern organized crime, 200 years of organized crime ran that into the city. And as you might guess, a bar in a place like that would have had a lot of, a lot of incidences in and around it, including, sure. you know, killings in the modern day, you know, stick up artists trying to stick up the wrong man, getting a shot in the head right at the entryway, that kind of stuff. Right. It's got a lot of ghost activity, but not only because of the violence, but because, you know, we're with the French called Côte d'Ivoire, drinking culture. Our lives revolve completely around our taverns, cafes, and restaurants. And our families are so old and our businesses are so, so old, it would not be uncommon at all in the city for a man to take his son for his first legal drink at the place his great-great-grandfather had his first legal drink. Huh. Generations, oh, wow. family make relationships with businesses, with restaurants, with taverns. Uh, and as a result, because you're so interconnected to every part of your life in these buildings, because you die doesn't mean you leave your favorite bar. Right. So we get a lot of ghost activity that are obviously of the recently dead in our city. A lot of it, whether it's little old ladies with chunky purses walking down the sidewalk to go to the parish church, or whether it's uh, men sitting at a table at their favorite bar who've obviously been dead for a little while because of the gray green, green color of their face and the black pits where there should be eyes, to uh, men who've been murdered in a building and are still waiting around 200 years later. I mean, there's so much everywhere we go, so much we can talk about. And as a result, you know, I honestly, I never run out of things to tell people. It's just like, again, I, I'm trapped for time and I select certain stories that I think will illustrate, for, for example, the spooky, the ghost act attitude of the city of New Orleans. Um, not the jump out of from the corner, scream, scary kind of crap, because almost all that stuff around the world is going to be completely made up. But the real, genuine, it really happens a lot. Take photographs, you'll be surprised what you catch on a camera. 
um, reality of ghosts in our city. Now, is is the ghost tour your most popular? No, I'd say actually my dark history is most popular because everybody, everybody and their mother offers a ghost tour. Uh, most of them are the exact same story told over and over again because they're all using the same scripts. Um, I generally have a loathing for scripts because, you know, you need to be able to read and ask questions and listen to answers. But um, while my, I think my ghost tour is cool. I mean, the best compliments I've ever had on my ghost tours, I've done at least half a dozen ghost tours and I've never heard any of the stories you're telling us. Oh. That's a good compliment. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> That's I love. That makes me so happy. Like, so, what sorry, is the dark? What is the dark history one then? Sort of a smattering of like some ghost and some other stuff, and and a collection, or is it, or is it a conceptual difference that I'm not understanding? It's really a conceptual difference. I mean, if I talk about ghosts, and I, I just mentioned ghost activity on my dark history tour because when you have massive deaths and heavy trauma. There will be ghosts left behind. It's mm. just going to happen. Right. So, for example, I talk about slavery in a place that was once a slave pen, literally on the spot. But the building's more than 200 years old, and it was a home a large part of the time period. One of the owners com um, committed suicide upstairs uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. So he's very much in the building. Um, but the fact that it's literally on the spot of a slave pen, a slave yeah. corral, it's a good place to talk about slavery. And as you might guess, you know, get, you get these people who've been ripped away from their homes and has spent you know, weeks, months in a stinking hold, and they arrive in a savage new world. And if you don't think that you called on the most savage curse, you could imagine with someone who literally stole your life. Oh, they're yeah. from West Africa, they're carrying the voodoo with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that leaves those marks behind metaphysically. Um, mm. So you know, I'll talk about the dark history of the place, but I'll also mention some of the ghost activity because I want people to understand That's how brilliant. very intense the building is historically. And how many things just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of things do leave uh, resonance behind. Um, but, you know, I, I talk about all kinds of horrible things in the city, great epidemics that we suffered. We suffered an epidemic every year from about 1720 to 1905. It would kill thousands or tens of thousands of people every year from just, you know, a single disease. Um, why, why is that? Is it just bad luck or was there? We're in a bayou. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. Say. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's a silly question. <laughs> <laughs> tropical environments, so, you know, yeah. okay. nobody understood germ theory. Um, most children never wore. Most people really wouldn't wear shoes a lot in the early days. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even in the uh, early late 1900s, early 20th century, children didn't wear shoes because they were pretty poor, right? Right. So, a barefoot and a rusty nail is a dead child. Right. For most of the city's yeah. history. So, I mean, it's this kind of the, the simple fact of reality of life is what makes us so dark, you know? Great fires, slavery, uh, tor torture and execution in the squares, um, uh, piracy, crime, serial killing. What about witchcraft? Was there, was there any yeah. witchcraft in the area? Or would we Absolutely. just call the voodoo the witchcraft and it wasn't? Well, that's a really hard thing to, to, to parse because witchcraft means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's it's very hard. You could say swamp witch. Mm -hmm. Swamp witch would be an appropriate thing. However, that would really be more along the lines of what people call hoodoo, H-O-O-D-O-O. -O -O. Yeah. I've, I've always wondered what's the difference between hoodoo and voodoo. I would. Well, one of the voodoo practitioners I know of says hoodoo is what's left over when the religion of voodoo has been, been forgotten. Okay.
So, so you don't know why you're doing things, but you're doing things. It blends in with Native American as well as European, Native American, um, Native American traditions, as well as European witchcraft. And it kind of makes its own little weird savory blend, hoodoo. So hoodoo is really prevalent in places like the Carolinas and Georgia, uh, coastal areas like that. Um, certainly there's hoodoo all over Louisiana as well. It's just, it's that blend of, of European and Native American and, and slave practices all mixed up together. Um, but it, it isn't a religion. It's, it's a specific, if you will, skill set. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it does. It does. Uh, you, you don't necessarily know the history, you know the effects. And so, you know, you were saying a swamp witch, which I got to say, I like that term. I am, yeah. a fan, I am a fan of horror films and swamp witch is hitting me in a hitting me in a good way. You know, it's is that something that's real or is that just a crazy hermit lady living out there that everybody says is a swamp witch or do they claim to be the swamp witch? It's real. Um, I don't know that they would necessarily claim to be the Swamp Witch, per se. Yeah, that might not have been the best words, but you get where I'm coming but with it. If you consider the in the bayous, the Cajuns in the bayous, mm -hmm. they have their own traditions, and their old folklore as well. Um, Traiteur is a word that's used, and that's essentially a spirit healer. Not really a faith healer, per se, although they can be religious overtones. But people are considered, you know, just blessed with healing abilities. Mm -hmm. That's still very much a strong tradition in the bayou. Hmm. Um, so I guess you say, uh, the healing thing would be sort of the benevolent side of the swamp, witch. I guess that would be a, maybe a fair way to put it. Somewhat it's shamanistic, much, it seems. Yeah. Well, cause there's Native American influence, no doubt at all. Sure. But, uh, it, it's, you know, people oftentimes are said to be born with a power or born with a skill. So they're, they're brought in as an apprentice and they're taught the traditions. Um, you know, I know some people who their grandmother was the Tatea. Her grandmother was the Swamp Witch, but for reasons of her own, she declined to pass on her information. Uh, even at one point um, of burning everything, burning all her notes, burning all her books, burning all her, her papers. Wow. This would be, you know, um, early 1920s, 30s. For what reasons, I do not know, but she, you know, she still mourns it to this day that her great-great-grandmother declined to, to pass on her knowledge. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's so much history there that's probably just lost because it was all... Absolutely. It was absorbable and on paper, so so disposable. Yeah. You know, um, I think for some reason we all associate... Here you have a vampire tour. Yes. And, and we all associate vampires with New Orleans, but outside of Anne Rice, I can't think of why I do that. Yeah, is it just Anne Rice or is it... Well, is obviously, it, it's, that, it can't just be Anne Rice, or there wouldn't be a tour. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not just Anne Rice. Um, she, she certainly popularized that of Vampires in New Orleans for the modern pop culture, but, you know, there have been old legends in the city for a long time. Um, oh. it, it, you got to realize, you know, the people who found the city of New Orleans are with, almost without exception going to be peasants. They're going to come really genuinely from the earth. This is a city that essentially was built um, to be a essentially a military strong point city. Um, but its first population were all convicts. Mm -hmm. I mean, all convicts. Uh, so you have people who are the street sweepings of Paris, um, people who came from, from uh, Canada, 
Um, the original Frenchmen came uh, over here and a lot of them were just very poor people of, of the lower class, but they all had their own legends, their own folklore. And of course it would blend into the area. Um, when you add to the fact that this is a city that was incredibly dangerous in the first 30 years we're here, I read something that said the, the annual death rate of the city of New Orleans is estimated to have eclipsed 80% twice in the first 30 years we were here. What? Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're it must have been a big influx with, of people then. Oh, yeah. To I mean, they, they like emptied that. the prisons. They emptied the prisons and sent people again and again. The madhouses, the homeless, everybody. I mean, you could go on Bourbon Street today, you go prisons, madhouses, homeless. Okay, it makes sense. But literally, it was, it was the people that they found to be the least useful in France were sent here. This is kind of the ass end of the French Empire. It's a place that nobody, including the soldiers, wanted to be sent. Hmm. So it was a, just a dumping ground. Uh, so these people are rough and tough and violent and vicious. They're traditionally used to sol solving something with a knife. Okay, and as a result, you got hundreds of men who are usually armed and usually drunk. There's not enough women, right? You know, so gambling, liquor—it's it was just going to be a death trap for a very long time. Then you add disease. Then you add the Native Americans. Then you add, uh, you know, just the wildlife. Mm -hmm. So it, it was generally a terrifying and extremely dangerous place. And as a result, people would vanish and people would die all the time. And then you have people vanishing and dying all the time. You have these very superstitious people. And then you add a little bit of our history, the things that actually did for sure happen. And all these things blend together and create the idea of vampires in the city of New Orleans, which is extremely cool. Folklore. Yeah. <laughs> but there also have been a, a large number of murders over the course of several you know, hundred years where people have literally been hunted, killed for blood. I mean, murdered so someone could take their blood. It has happened at least five or six times that I know of in the city of New Orleans in the past 150 years or so. So these are bits of old folklore. These are bits of strange murders and they kind of all sort of tie in together. And, you know, there's a building here that I'm, I'm really sure that the, it's the point from which all the vampire folklore of the South really would start is one building in New Orleans. And that's kind of, if you will, the star of the tour because I can tell people how it all happens and that makes a cool sense, because by the end of the story, you'll understand how the history and folklore are very tight. Mm. The building itself is very strange, very mysterious, uh, and it's got a lot of strange folklore around it as well, as well as being a site of a, a very interesting double murder mm. uh, about 50 years ago. So it's just creepy and cool. And it's one of those things that my goal is, by the end of the tour, I want you to be less sure about everything you knew. When you started, because I, you know, I start about everything from, you know, vampire folklore around the world. Mm. I like to, when I have a good group of people, I, I like to say, are right, you tell me what you know for sure about vampires? And I'll tell you what's true or false based on the oldest folklore. And I'll tell you what. And I think that's a good way to start a tour, a tour like that, because we can get all the tropes out and I can explain it to them. But hopefully by explaining the logic behind the tropes, they get, come to the realization that our ancestors took this extremely seriously. This was an existential threat, threat to our ancestors, that the dead are outside watching in, and they're watching you. That's interesting, because I didn't think there were a lot of, like, French vampire myths. Sure. Cauchemar. Oftentimes, you might guess they're a little more sexy, being French. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, of course. The idea of the, you know, Cauchemar is a traditional one. It's very much like a succubus or incubus. 
I haven't heard of that. Very Which cool. one? What is that one? Question mark. Huh. Yeah, I'm gonna have to um, look that up. But you, you know, you have you, you really people don't don't really realize it because you know, let's face it, the, the age of enlightenment really to know the small degree starts in France, right? A lot of the old superstitions were put down, put away, thrown out, burned away, right? Mm-hmm. right. But they were absolutely as superstitious as anyone else in the in the right. European sure. world. Yeah, I just I, mean, I thought it, I had this misconception of it as sort of a Eastern European, and then you also get sort of Asian vampire myths and Middle Eastern vampire myths. But uh, sort of that's that's you're talking about a huge part of the world at that point. Well, yeah, I know, but that, don't forget it, Africa. It, that excludes Western <laughs> Europe. I didn't think there were North and South America. Western Europe. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of neat because about it's estimated about ninety eight percent of every culture that ever existed or exists has vampire legends in them. Okay. And six six of the seven continents men call home seem to have vampire legends native to them. So that's kind of a cool thing too, that it's it's always been with our people forever and ever and ever and ever. Right. And uh, it's it's neat when you get the same folklore separated by the entire planet in three yeah. different or more cultures. By the oceans, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for example, uh, vampires are seen in many cultures as a shapeshifter. Never the bat. Mm-hmm. Bram made the bat out. But they're often seen as, as three different types of animals. Uh, raven or crow, wolf or black dog, or cat. Okay. And in Ireland, the main form of the vampire was seen as a black dog. In North Africa, it's a black jackal or black hyena. In the Philippines, main island, Luzon, it's a black dog. Now, those cultures arguably do not cross. No. Do not yeah. meet, but they have the same legend. And that's, I think, really fascinating when you start digging into this and seeing how far it goes back at human history. You know, the earliest writing really is early Sumerian, closer, you know, more like 5,500 years old than not. But in the earliest tablets of human writing, we get vampire legends in them. There were vampire warnings from them, from the Sumerians. So that stuff is just really fascinating. And when you start going through it and realizing the similarity of story that goes on for all of human recorded history and probably beyond, because... Of course, there were oral tales before they were written down. It makes it a really interesting tour. If you go in with an open mind and you you don't mind a little murder and you don't mind a little folklore, a little history and just some genuine weirdness all mixing it together and kind of tying the bow, package with a bow. So uh, the vampire myths in New Orleans, do we think there's, you know, you talked about the danger and so forth. Do we think that at some point there were supernatural monsters in new orleans hunting people for their blood was it- if there if there was any part of the world where some, a creature like that could prosper where do you think it would be well i mean new orleans would be great but nine million visitors in 2019 <laughs> nine million people came to visit that is literally 20 times the size of the city's population came to visit not all of them went home that's fair yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, you know, if you, could you imagine a better place where as long as you didn't screw up, you'd survive and you have right. millions of people, many of them were drunk. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, this is true. Uh, before Katrina, not where tourists could see it, but on the, the neighborhoods just around the corner, there was not a single telephone pole, not a single electric lamp pole. They didn't have its share of missing person posters. And they weren't little girls. They weren't little boys. It was most often men between the ages of 22 and 32. And the most common notations on a missing person poster in New Orleans were the words, last seen on Bourbon Street. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Okay. Huh. 
Yeah, my city's a little weirder than most people think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you you asking those questions, it, if ever I'm a vampire, I'm just going to go back and forth between New Orleans and Vegas, apparently. Yeah, you know, why not? Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty sweet life, to be honest right. with you. <laughs> um, so the people who come on these vampire tours, um, are they vamp fans? It's like... I imagine that the people who want to go on a vampire tour all look like Kara. Okay, now. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely go on a vampire tour. Yeah, I know. That you would be my first stop saying. in New oh, Orleans. Is it, is it a bunch of Karas, or do you get little old ladies on these things? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I think I've made more friends from doing a vampire tour than anything else, because you know, I, awesome. I have a very good friend of mine who is a, a Unitarian priest, mm-hmm. and I met her doing a vampire tour. I've I've had people who are nuns on my vampire tour. Genuinely. Yeah. I've had, uh, you know, you name it. I've had serious goths. I'd have people who just thought it'd be kind of a lark. Sure. Um, yeah. People who are into the paranormal and the occult. People who are true believers. People who are true skeptics. And, you know, I, I always try and people. It's like, I'm not, the deal I'm going to make is I'm not going to tell you what to believe. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what I know. And I'll tell you what I think if you ask me. But I'm not going to tell you what to think. Because I don't like having people try and sell me an idea on a tour. So I like to present it and let people make up their own decisions and conclusions based on what I say and based on what they think and based on the questions they ask. I think that's a very fair way to do it. But, um, you know, it's kind of weird. I guess it comes and goes along with the popularity of vampires and and what's making it popular. I mean, obviously, when Anne Rice was writing consistently in the earlier days, uh, and, of course, you had Interview the Vampire and um, Queen of the Dam coming out. It was a different group of people than the ones who come out for Vampire Diaries and the originals. Right. Oh, yeah. I can <laughs> yeah. imagine. There are also a lot of vampire folk or vampire um, fictional books that were set in New Orleans. So we would have conventions of people who are fans of this certain series of novels would come to New Orleans and, you know, we do tours with them and stuff like that because it had nothing to do really with the novel, but there were a lot of the same settings. They were interested in seeing where things physically were took place or where the, the uh, author had in mind when they described the place or this place was supposed to be the home of this and this character. So it kind of really depends on what they like. We try, you know, whenever possible, I try and tailor a tour to people's particular interests. But um, I, I honestly, I think the, the folkloric mystery of it, the kind of creepy mystery of it all is kind of cool. You know, yeah. like Absolutely. I said, if, if there I was ever a place vampires would be perfect to be here, you know, this would be a natural home for a vampire. Yeah, well, I was just thinking about how weird a lot of this stuff is and that that towns without a good level of weirdness are boring. You know, you got to have you got to I don't know, there's got to be some some grit. And, uh, you know, it it seems like there's a lot of grit history. I, I mean, we all knew this about New Orleans, but I don't think a lot of us. It's like we just knew that New Orleans was interesting with the dark history, but I don't think a lot of us actually knew what that history was, you know? Yeah. So uh, I love hearing the grit, that's for sure. Man, we got nothing but grit. We got <laughs> lots and lots and lots of grit. Um, you know, and it, it's frustrating because there's so many things you want to talk about and you can't because you're trapped for time. Vampire Tour for me is one of my hardest tours to do because there's so much to talk about. I mean, I could take you past uh, one, two, three, four, four places where people were literally murdered for blood in the French Quarter. Now, why do we associate that with vampirism and not voodoo? 
because it, they had nothing to do with voodoo. I mean, they're they're yes. completely Pardon. different <laughs> beasts. Are they? Remember, okay. voodoo is a religion. Voodoo is a religion. Voodoo does not use human sacrifice. Okay, but I think of like a chicken blood and stuff. I mean, I know nothing about this. These are just my preconceived notions. But I I think of blood sacrifices with animals. But you're saying that that people blood has nothing to do with voodoo, and this was some sort of just okay. weird serial killer or yeah. thing. I mean, there are lots like you go on Wikipedia. There's a classification: vampire murder. You know, people killing other people for their blood is a type of crime. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's something I like to explore too. It's like, are, am I describing serial killers? Or am mm -hmm. I describing with a blood fetish? Or am I describing what we now call vamp what we call vampires. I mean, it doesn't make a difference to the dead whether you need the blood or you just think you need the blood, right? <laughs> right. Yes, that's for but sure. But that's yeah. also a good question to ask. What's the difference between a vampire and a serial killer with a blood fetish? I mean, well, you see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. In theory, it's a little what? harder to, to fight off the former, you know. Yeah, you, you think. Them, they don't die. Arguably, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, it's just really a fascinating thing to, to, to kind of pick it apart and try and understand where it all comes from. Um, I don't, I don't want to get people the, have the impression that I have all the answers. I got sure. lots of answers. I've got lots of maybe so's. I've got lots of that's reasonable assumptions. I've got lots of wow, that's deeply disturbing and strange. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I will never tell people I know the answer of things. I, I just, I hate that stuff and I will not do it. Um, but I still think it's all worth discussing, you know, I'll just, I'll, it, I guess I require a lot of a more of a listen question to answer mm -hmm. tour than me just shouting words at you. You know what I mean? Right. I, I always ask people if they have questions before, after, you know, I, I love questions whenever possible because it, it lets me have an idea of what you want to know, but it also lets me explain things so everybody else can understand it better too. So it's a, uh, it's it's great to do that way. Um, it's just the vampire tour is such a tricky one because there's so much information that I have in my head, folklorically, historically, murder-wise, um, legendarily, that it's genuinely impossible to do the tour easily within two hours. I mean, it's so much information. That's I started doing a vampire VIP tour. Um, I have some friends here who have very cool speakeasy tucked away right behind one of the best jazz bars in the city, a real jazz bar. And it's a fantastically cool place, very small groups of people in. So if people do a vampire VIP with me, I give them, you know, we get the whole tour, but then we go over there, I get them into the speakeasy for free and we go up into the speakeasy and then we can actually have conversation. You know, it's like an extra hour if you have any questions or do you want me to tell you more things or what, you know, what do you want to know? So it's really more of a one-on-one -on -one kind of personal thing. That's cool. It's uh, it's very cool. I've gotten some really good response from it, and I'm really glad I did that because there's just so much. You gotta it's, write uh, a book. Get, I don't know a publisher in the world who wouldn't pick that up in a heart. If I wrote a book, then anybody could pick up my book well, and know the things I know. Once you, you know, once you retire, I mean, right? For right. Something I've been like doing that. it for 20 years. I'm probably not. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to retire. But yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a lot of people ask about that. And, and I probably when you're on your start... deathbed, write a book. <laughs> yeah, can't I probably it, should start sketching things out. Yeah, because there's just so much to talk about. And it's just yeah. just so cool. It is, um, it is very it's, cool. It's a big blessing to live in a city where, I mean, if you look at the folklore norms, uh, and the, the people who came here, I mean, you understand that Alistair Crawley was here, right? The Great Beast. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he lived in New Orleans for a while. Yeah. It's that kind of place, right? Right. Um, Oscar Wilde very much enjoyed his time in New Orleans when he was here, for example. Of course, Mark Twain was here, you know? It's, it's a very interesting place for art and writers and people who ponder the mysterious, the folkloric. But if you look at just the folklore of the city, the city folklore has legends of witchcraft, ghosts, vampires, and voodoo. And the bodies are patrolled by werewolves. Werewolves? Yeah. This is new for me. Okay, where, where does that stem from? Or it comes from the, the Cajuns. The Cajuns, okay. Mm-hmm. Rugaru. 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 Man, you guys got it all down there. That's yeah, not very we crazy. really do. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's an embarrassment of riches, man. Yeah, I've that's got to get it over there the next time I visit my brother in Georgia. So. Well, unfortunately, we're at the end here. Um, Jonathan Vice has been our guest. Uh, Jonathan, how do how do people find out about your tours if they're coming through the area? How do they get in touch with you? To, to it's very them? easy. I mean, my website is the name of my company, J O N A T H A N Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W-E-I-S-S, Vice, T-O-U-R-S, Tours.com. So JonathanViceTours.com, you can get on the internet. It's got pretty good information about all my uh, my tours, what we're offering, dates, time, stuff like that. You can purchase tickets through that. You can also send emails to me through that without a problem at all. Um, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, I could also give... Hang on a second. Here. I can also give you my number. You can People can also call me for information at 504 356 2007. So I'm easily accessible by phone, accessible by email, the internet. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to be able to do what I do. And, and it's really rewarding when I get to share, I guess, I guess you'd say my sense of wonder at the deeply strange and malevolent place that I live in right. with people who are interested in knowing that it's more than just getting drunk and having beads thrown at you. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely the aspect of it that we like, and it's definitely on my bucket list of places that my wife and I want to go. And uh, so maybe when all this is over, I'll be able to get there. Hey, give me a shout, man. I've got some good places for you to stay. I've got some uh, good places for you to go. I'll be happy to drag you around a little bit. Sounds great. Well, um, yeah. you know, uh, if ever you got anything you'd like to come on the show again, we'd love to have you. Uh, this has been very interesting and a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It, it, it scratched all the itches that both of us always have with these topics. So uh, serial killers. I've and, been waiting since we started this folklore. show for someone to tell me maybe vampires are real. So, Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to say I'm cautiously agnostic. Right. Well, I, I, I like maybe, that too. You know? <laughs> I like that too. Maybe it's better than definitely. All right, you've been listening to Jonathan Vice here on Radio Wasteland. You can find out more by going to Jonathan Vice V E I S S dot W E I S S. Oh, W E I S S. Pronounce with a V, spelled with a W. Right, pronounce with a V, spelled with a W. Jonathan Vice dot Tours dot com. Uh, we'll put the link up on the site so that you don't have to listen to me uh, <laughs> thank you very much uh, for being on the show you've been listening it's my pleasure y'all i look forward to seeing you another time yeah take care